0: Before I begin, I will make a very important disclaimer. I am not classically trained in medicine. I'm not a physician. I know nothing about epidemiology or virology or medicine at all. And therefore, I want to make it abundantly clear before I start speaking that what I'm going to share with you is my own personal opinion. It's going to be guided by my training, by my background in rabbinics and Torah, but not from any medical background at all. And I urge everyone To go to the experts, go to the CDC, go to the World Health Organization, follow whatever the local authorities in your locale tell you to do vis-a-vis, of course, the subject of this podcast, the coronavirus. Now, I was planning on discussing something else. We have an amazing Parsha, Parsha T. It's a loaded Parsha. I prepared some very interesting ideas to share about this Parsha, about the golden calf, the sin of the golden calf and the tablets that Moses brings down that he ultimately shatters the bottom of the mountain. And then, of course, there's the whole prayer to forgive the Jewish people and the second set of tablets are given as well. But I decided to scrap those plans when something very significant happened in our neighborhood. We had a visitor from New York City who was in close contact with someone at home, someone in in New York, who tested positive for coronavirus. And this visitor came to our neighborhood and they were here visiting friends, they were here for Purim. And early on this week, they began exhibiting flu-like symptoms, and they were tested. And last night, we got the results that they indeed are positive. They have this horrific virus. So as I'm speaking to you right now, there's some kids in our neighborhood that are quarantined. There's a decent chance that all of us will be quarantined soon. I'm not yet under quarantine, and I did not have any contact with this particular person. So I'm coming to you from the Torch Center, from the normal podcast studio in the Torch Center, but the next one, I guess I'll give you the update, the next one may be from some sort of bunker or some place where I'm quarantined, but as of right now, we're still okay. And I think in general, the changing world that is kind of unfolding and unfurling in front of our eyes very rapidly, I think it's going to change the way people consume all kinds of media, but certainly the way people study Torah. Of course, traditionally, Jews get together, they go to the study hall, they go to the shul, and they study Torah together. But as the world is becoming more digital and going online, of course, this is something that's near and dear to my heart, there are new platforms and new media through which to connect Jews and Judaism, through which to teach Torah to the masses. And of course, I've been doing this, as you know, since 2012, since before it was cool. But I think that this particular virus hopefully, is going to be a boon for the podcasting industry and the people that are committed to study Torah will continue studying Torah, but in a safer environment online until things quiet down and they can go back to normal routines. I always urge my colleagues to try to diversify, that we shouldn't limit ourselves to a specific zip code, a specific location, try to make Torah study and try to make our outreach and educational efforts as convenient as possible for our constituency. I always like to say that the old model was like the blockbuster model. You got to come to our building at a specific time in order to enjoy what you want to enjoy. But the new model, well, that's Netflix. It's on demand. You can play it at your own speed. You can listen to half a class and finish it on your commute back home. And I think that there's something positive that's going to come out of this, that more people are going to be exposed to new kinds of learning, to new learning modalities and paradigms. And in that spirit, I want to plug a new podcast, the Jewish Inspiration Podcast by Rabbi Arya Wolby. That's my older brother. This is a wonderful new podcast that he launched. He has very ambitious aspirations to leapfrog me in the amount of downloads that he gets. So I wish him tremendous luck and please help him out in that Noble Pursuit, again, it is called the Jewish Inspiration Podcast with Rabbi Arya Walby. So after all those introductions, I want to talk about the coronavirus. And I think a way to open up the subject is that we are always trained, whenever we encounter something, we're trained to ask the question, what is the message for us? The Talmud tells us that when something bad happens to a person, when something painful befalls a person they are required to try to figure out what the message is what is the almighty telling you you're supposed to examine your deeds you're supposed to examine your behavior you're supposed to ponder what exactly is the message and what is the lesson that you should take home the balshantav used to say that the world is like a mirror everything that you see you're supposed to reflect it inward, try to absorb it, try to digest the message, and try to see what the Almighty is telling you and what you need to improve, what area of your life maybe you should re-examine. The Talmud tells us that if someone witnesses a sota, a suspected adulteress in her disgrace, Yazir atzmo menayayin, they should abstain from wine by making themselves a nazir. What that means is when you witness someone else who potentially has behaved in a very immoral fashion, that should not be limited to something that you relate to as something which is very external. Quite the contrary, you're supposed to turn it inwardly and ask, what is the message for me? And I think with this coronavirus ravaging the world, it's dominating the news, the NBA canceled or suspended their season, the stocks, of course, are all tanking, there's no more trips to Europe, locally, schools, and schools and stores are all closed. There's panic. And I think it's incumbent upon us to ask the question, what is the message? For us, what is the takeaway that we can have or what are some of the lessons that we could take from this very rapidly changing story? And I think that there's at least three different lessons that we can take from our parsha regarding – how we're supposed to think about it, but also potentially ideas of how we could mitigate the influence of this horrific disease. Our parsha begins with a census and how exactly Jews count other Jews. And the verse tells us, when you take a census of the children of Israel, every person gives a donation. Of course, that's a subject that's near and dear to my heart. Every person gives a donation to God, to the coffers of the temple, and that is a proxy for counting them. And then the verse concludes, so that there will not be a plague among them when counting them. It's an amazing way to start the Parsha. That The Parsha is telling us that there is a way to avoid pandemics, a way to avoid plagues, and that is by substituting coins for people when counting people when doing a census. And every year when the Jewish people would count how many Jews there are, They would not count people. They wouldn't line people up against the wall and start counting them one after another. Instead, every person makes a donation of the half-shackle coin, and that money goes into the temple coffers. That money is used to buy the animals and buy the materials for the daily sacrifices in the temple and in the tabernacle, and that's the way that you know by counting the coins you know how many people you have. Now, of course, all the commentaries ask the question, what does counting people directly have to do with a plague? Again, it's implied for the verse that if the Jewish people are counted directly, you just line them up and just count them, well, then there is a risk of a plague. There is a risk of a epidemic, a pandemic. What does counting people directly have to do with the risk, with the threat of people dying in a plague? So, of course, there's many answers to this, but one of the themes that all the commentaries talk about is that if you just count people, you just make a list of people, or line them up against the wall and just count them one after another, what you're doing is you're equating everyone. You're ignoring the individuality of each individual person. Each person is a world. Each person matters. Each person is unique. It's not just a bunch of generic humanoids, a bunch of generic homo sapiens. No, each person is an individual and each person's so valuable, and I cannot limit them to being a statistic by just counting them one after another. And I think we can maybe suggest, you know, we have this terrible virus, and the virus doesn't differentiate between people. You have heads of state, you have celebrities, they're all getting the virus just like everyone else, regardless of where they are in the socioeconomic strata. I think we could suggest that a virus or a plague is a manifestation of people not being differentiated as individuals. And here what the Torah is telling us is that the way to mitigate, the way to avoid the plague is to notice and recognize the value and the worth of each individual. Moreover, this process is used to buy sacrifices. Each individual is a vital cog in our collective national relationship with the Almighty. If I don't have this individual, I have less money that I can use to buy the sacrifices, which again, foster, which engender that relationship we have with God. Thus, counting people as individuals, recognizing that each one is its, its own unique world, that is the opposite of how a virus and a plague operates when it doesn't distinguish, it doesn't discriminate, it just goes after all the humanoids. And I think it's also interesting that the verse begins, Ki si sa b'nei Israel" when you count, but the literal translation is when you uplift. This is a process of uplifting the Jewish people, of treating each one as something of tremendous individual and unique value. And therefore, you're not just going to make a list of them, a generic list, and just count them one after another. I think maybe what the verse is hinting at That there is perhaps an idea, a solution to how to avoid the plague, to see people as individuals, to see each individual as someone of worth, to break out of the cocoon of selfishness that maybe we're want to be in and recognize that every single individual is needed to foster that relationship that we have with us and the Almighty. Every Jew is uplifted. Every Jew has amazing value of being a human, of being a fellow Jew. We also say that every person that exists, every person that's alive in the world today, is someone that the Almighty decreed, so to speak, that they should be alive. It's almost as if the Almighty is telling us that every person is needed because if they weren't needed, they wouldn't be here. And that's a different attitude that we have when we do a census. We just make a list of people. We don't ask questions. It doesn't really matter to us. If there's a warm body here, we're counting it. No, every human, and certainly every Jew, is someone, the Almighty is telling us, this person I need. The world cannot exist without them, because if it could, they wouldn't exist. Uplift the Jewish people, and therefore count them this way, and therefore you avoid the virus, you avoid the plague, because the plague happens when we don't recognize the value of each individual. I want to add to this point In our partial, we read about the Katoras, the incense. The incense, of course, is a list of 11 different spices that you create the cocktail, the concoction, and you burn it on the inner altar twice a day. In a later partial, the Book of Numbers, we read about a plague that befell the Jewish people in the aftermath of the sin that the Jews did with the Moabite women. And that's, of course, when Pinchas, when Phineas, he has his moment of zealotry and heroism where he takes very drastic measures to try to stem the plague. But if you read the story, you'll notice that Aaron is told by Moses, take the ketores, take the incense, and go offer it in middle of the plague. In fact, we read there's 24,000 people that have died, and Aaron stands in between the living and the dead, in between the people that have already been taken away by the plague and the people that have not yet been affected by it. And he offers the incense and then immediately freezes the plague. The plague stops. The Talmud tells us that when Moses was in heaven, initially the angels were very hostile to him, but ultimately he won them over and the angels gave him a secret. And the secret that they gave him was that K'tores, the incense offering, that is a prophylactic against plagues. Maybe we can suggest the ktores, as we have mentioned in the other podcast, the ktores is a combination of a lot of different spices. Some of them are amazing in isolation, and some of them are absolutely rancid, are absolutely nauseating in isolation. And the Talmud tells us that this is an analogy, or this is a parable, this is a parallel to the Jewish people. The Jewish people, some of us, in isolation, hopefully all of us, are righteous. But of course, we know that there are some sinners amongst us. The ketores is the union, the incense is the union of all the disparate Jews. Some of them smell great on their own, some of them smell terrible, very foul on their own, and all of them are brought together to create the aromatic experience of the ketores. Maybe we can suggest... That what the K'toris symbolizes is that every person is valuable even in the event that we don't view them as an individual being so worthy, so righteous, so meritorious. The K'toris symbolizes that everyone's needed. The people that you think don't, don't matter, these are people that are necessary. These are individuals of tremendous worth that if you don't have them, you don't have the K'toris. If you're missing some of the ingredients, you don't have the K'toris. If you miss missing some Jews, you don't have the great Jewish nation in unity, and therefore you have the risk of the plague. Thus, the verse over here that tells us to count the coins and not the people, and thus avoid the virus, thus avoid the plague. And the verse in the Book of Numbers that tells us bring the k'tores, which of course is mentioned in our Parsha, but bring the k'tores, and that stops the plague, both of them actually have the same underlying theorem, underlying principle at play, and that is that even the Jews that we can maybe disregard we would do that, but God doesn't do that. Even the spices that are foul smelling, no, they also are a necessary ingredient in the ketores. We have to treat everyone as individuals. And maybe we can make this first suggestion from the, from our parsha that one of the lessons that we should take home is that perhaps we're not doing enough of viewing each one of our brethren, each one of our Jewish friends and neighbors as someone of tremendous value and import and someone that we need to cherish as an individual, not just as a statistic. That's the first lesson that I wanted to bring out from our Parsha about the coronavirus. Now, it's interesting, the very next thing that's discussed after the first instruction to fundraise with the half shekel coin is about the kior, the water basin that you wash your hands with. And it's an amazing verse, verse 20, when they come to the tent of meeting, this is talking about the Kohan of the priests, Aaron and his sons. When they're going to do work in the Mishnah on the Tabernacle, they shall wash with water and not die. And this kind of blows me away. You know, we live in a time where everyone's worried about this virus, everyone's terrified about it. And the one thing, or the first thing even, that everyone says is you have to wash your hands. The World Health Organization, the CDC, and the Torah agree. And in fact, you read the verse wash your hands and not die. In fact, the rabban tells us that this is the source in the Torah for the mitzvah of washing our hands. And we know Jews are obsessed with washing your hands. In the morning, you wake up in the morning, you're supposed to wash your hands. Before you eat, you're supposed to wash your hands. Before you pray, you're supposed to wash your hands. After using the bathroom, you're supposed to wash your hands. It's an amazing mitzvah, and it's a mitzvah that we're told of course, this is in a different context, about the Kohan, about the priests, about Aaron and his sons walking into the tabernacle. Wash your hands and not die. And you open up the news or you read any basic guide, any basic list of recommendations as to how to navigate this danger. And they say the same thing. Wash your hands and that will help protect you against this virus. It's such an amazing thing to observe that the theme that we've been preaching for millennia, wash your hands, Science, the rest of the world, is echoing today, wash your hands and not die. Now, it's interesting. This is a custom and, in fact, a law to wash your hands at various junctures throughout the day. But I read something fascinating in the name of the Chazonish that I recently did three episodes on the Jewish History Podcast channel on. He said something astonishing. When you have small children, and, of course, as Jews, we want to train our children. We want to rear our children with Torah values. What's the most important thing to teach young children? The most important thing, says the Chazanish, to teach them to wash their hands, which is an astonishing thing. There's something so special about this as a mitzvah, and of course, secondarily, as good hygiene and, and virus avoidance and, of course, keeping your hands clean. And that's something which is so critical and so important. It's got to be one of the first things we train our children to do. We know historically In the 14th century, there was the black plague, the bubonic plague that ravaged much of the world. It killed a third of the world. And the Jews were falsely accused of poisoning the wells. Of course, we didn't do that, but the Jews did die at a slower rate and we know now why because the Jews have this obsession with washing our hands. And it's only later on that the whole idea of bacteria and, and viruses, these tiny microbes that could influence your health, only that joined the the general populace. The, the idea became disseminated throughout the world, but we kind of knew it because we were just following Torah. Wash your hands, and that is a way for us to remain safe. And I want to add, I really believe this to be true. Talmud tells us that mitzvos provide protection, and provide salvation. It's a Talmud, the book of Soda, page 21a. I think we could say this with confidence. Both from a Torah perspective and from a medical perspective, if someone were to accept upon themselves this mitzvah of washing your hands in the morning, when you wake up in the morning, you fill up a cup, it's got to be done with the cup, once to the right, once to the left, once to the right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. Four times on each hand in this alternating fashion. It's a mitzvah, and it's also something that we can say with confidence is going to help keep you cleaner, improve your hygiene, and prevent you or or contribute towards keeping you as safe as possible when you're about to eat. Twice on the right, and then twice on the left before you pray. Make your hands a little wet after using the bathroom. Wash your hands. I think if someone were to accept upon themselves this mitzvah. I can say with confidence that it is going to help improve their health, not only their spiritual health, but also their physical health. And that's another amazing lesson from our Parsha, that we see it's important for us to wash our hands, we've been preaching it for a long time, and of course that's good medical advice that's unanimously accepted by all the professionals and all the experts. And I thought there was another interesting idea from our Parsha that would be germane to our subject Of course, the central episode of the Parsha is the sin of the golden calf. Jewish people, they're waiting for Moshe at the foot of the mountain. He is delaying in their mind. And they find the situation unmanageable and they try to create an alternative. They try to create an alternative for Moshe and it ends up being something which smacks of idolatry and even some pockets of the Jewish people actually worship as an idol. Of course, Moshe comes down from the mountain. And he shatters the tablets. And he takes the golden calf and grinds it into a dust and lets everyone drink it. He calls out to anyone that wants to join him to go put down the offenders. And he's praying to God. God says, I'm going to destroy them. We'll start from scratch. And Moshe, of course, intervenes. That's a very long, of course, narrative in our Parsha. But the Parsha ends with Moshe going up a, a third time to the mountain and we have the second tablets. And it's a very interesting verse that we read at the end of the Parsha, but also an amazing Rashi that I like to reference every single year. It's talking about how the people uh, saw Moshe when he came down from the mountain, and his face was radiating. His face was aglow. And Moshe didn't know that his face was as bright, was as luminous as the sun. And Aaron and all the children of Israel, this is verse 30 of chapter 34, they saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face had become radiant and they feared to approach him. They were so terrified of Moshe, even though, of course, he's he's a human. His face was so luminous, was so bright, was aglow with this holiness and radiance, they couldn't approach him. And I want to read Rashi because Rashi is a very powerful Rashi that I think could be related to this whole coronavirus discussion. Rashi tells us again in verse 30, come and see how great is the influence of sin. Because before the people sinned, before they did the golden calf, what does it say about them? It quotes the verse from chapter 24. This is by the Mount Sinai experience. And the vision of the honor of God was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain before the eyes of all of Israel. They actually witnessed some sort of representation of God on the top of the mountain. They had prophecy. Below Ureim, below Mizdazim, they weren't fearful and they had no trepidation. However, once they did the sin, once they committed the sin of the golden calf, even from the glorious illumination of Moshe, they were terrified, they had trepidation, and they were fearful. What Rashi is telling us is that there are certain real consequences of sin Sin actually changes a person's physiology. And I want to suggest that this coronavirus is almost a perfect parallel to sin. And here's my argument. First of all, when we look at someone who sins, we don't notice anything that changes. The changes are invisible. Similarly, if someone were to God be affected, be infected by this coronavirus. The change would be invisible. Moreover, the progression takes some time. Both sin and a virus doesn't make an immediate impression. It starts off maybe a little bit innocuous, but ultimately it could be deadly. Moreover, I think there's a similar pathology regarding how sin and how the virus affect a person. Our sages tell us that a sin embeds itself within a person and attacks the person from within. And from my research, again, as an amateur, from my research into the virus, it operates the same way. It embeds itself within a person. It's this like parasite that comes from without and and just goes within a person, implants itself within him and starts to wreak havoc. Moreover, I found something striking. The virus is actually different. It's not a living thing or there's a debate whether it is a living thing because it doesn't actually have any cells that divide. The virus actually comes from a person themselves, from the infected host's cell. And that's kind of similar to sin. Sin is like this foreign invader, this foreign intruder that embeds itself in our soul and starts to corrupt us from within. I want to argue that there's also a component of virality to sin. The Talmud tells us, Rasha." Woe to the wicked one, woe to the sinner, and woe to their neighbor. Just as we should try to inoculate ourselves, we should try to quarantine ourselves, we try to distance ourselves from someone that, God forbid, has a virus, because it could influence us, it could affect us, it could infect us. Similarly, with regards to sin, there is that same transmission, that same virality that if you surround yourself with bad people, you may be, infected with their evilness. Moreover, there's the lethality. Both the sin and the virus could effectively kill you. Of course, we know how the virus could effectively kill you. which could implant itself in your low respiratory uh, system and could cause pneumonia and all kinds of other terrible diseases, and it could be very dangerous, even lethal. And the Talmud tells us that sin works the same way. The Talmud tells us that a sinner is someone who, even while they are alive, they could actually be dead. They could be nominally alive. They could look like they're actually alive when, in fact, they are dead because their soul is dead within them. And therefore, I think there's a lot of parallels here between the effect that sin has on a person and how we know the virus and the coronavirus operates within a person. I had another interesting thought you know, the name coronavirus, the word corona means a crown. And of course, a virus is something which is very dangerous and even deadly. I think sin is kind of like a coronavirus of its own. The sin starts off as a crown. It's something which is so appealing. It's so alluring. Perhaps it's irresistible or apparently irresistible. It's something which is so desirous but ultimately, you realize that it's not a corona. It's a virus that could infect your soul and could be deadly. And I think when we have these parallels, it's something we could really take as a lesson home. When we see how people relate to the coronavirus, that should be a model for how we should relate to sin. The Mishnah tells us, You should run. You should run in pursuit of even a minor mitzvah and flee from sin. If you knew that there's someone who was definitely infected with coronavirus and they were coming after you, you'd run away. You'd hightail out of there. You'd abscond out of there to avoid being infected. That's the way we have to relate towards sin. We have to run away from it. And we see people changing their lifestyle, changing their habits, changing their plans, changing their vacation and travel plans because of the virus. Talma tells us that when you're traveling, you should think about which one of these routes is potentially more dangerous or going to increase or decrease my likelihood of encountering sin. And of course, just like you would avoid the plague, you'd avoid the virus as if it was a plague, we should try to avoid sin with that same determination. And I want to add more broadly, the general message of Jewish spirituality all relates, I think, to one common theme. And that is we are describing an invisible world. Of course, we all see our body. The soul, which Judaism argues is more important than the body, the soul's invisible. We see the world around us. What we don't see is God. God's invisible. Of course, we see that's more important than anything. We talk about this world because we can see it, and then you open up the sources, and it talks all about Olam Haba, the next world that we cannot envision. That's the world that's beyond us. And in fact, in Jewish literature, both our soul and God and Olam Haba are all described as being invisible. The Talmud tells us there's five commonalities between the soul and God, and one of them is Ro'e Ve'No'ireh, sees but is unseen. Our soul sees, we can't see it. God sees. But is unseen. Allah, the spiritual world, the next world, says the Talmud, Ain Lo Rasan, I cannot see it. We believe that there's an entire other world that matters much more than our visible world. The other world is invisible, and that's the world that really matters. And then we have this virus. The virus is totally invisible to us. And the entire world is quaking in their boots because of this invisible thing that's wreaking havoc, that's bringing the world to its knees. The Chavetz Chaim, of blessed memory, used to say, the Almighty lets us discover inventions and scientific discoveries that can help us restore faith. I think with this focus, this intense focus that's happening now on the virus, I think it's a good time to remember that this is an illustration of the fact that there are things that we cannot see but matter way more than things that we can visualize. I think that's another valuable and important lesson that we can draw home from this story that is dominating the airwaves. Maybe there's another idea as well at play here. From my research, it turns out that, you know, we talk about bacteria and viruses, and both of them, of course, are very, very small. We cannot see it with the naked eye, But a virus is the smallest of the microbes. And even though there is about 5,000 viruses that we know of, the largest virus, just in size, is still smaller than the smallest bacteria. So we're talking about a virus. It's so, so tiny. It's so, so small. And the Almighty is sending this small, tiny, minuscule thing, and it's humbling people. And there are sources in the Talmud that talk about How whenever we think about the small things that take over our world, it's a lesson in humility. The Talmud, for example, in the book of Sanhedrin tells us that Adam was created after the Yitush. The Yitush, it means like a fly. I suspect the way it's described in the Talmud, it may actually refer to a virus. More about that in a second. A Yitush was created before Adam. And the Talmud tells us that the reason why the yitush is created for Adam is because in case Adam gets too haughty, in case he gets too arrogant, you always remind him yitush Tidamcha, The yitush, this small, tiny animal, whatever it is, this yitush preceded you, and therefore don't get too prideful, don't get too boastful, don't get too arrogant. There's another story in the Talmud. This is the book of Gittin on page 56b, I believe it is. This is talking about the aftermath of the destruction of the Second Temple. And it's talking about Titus. Titus was the Roman general who actually destroyed the temple, ultimately became the Roman emperor. But it's talking about what happened in the aftermath of his destruction of the temple and all the slaughter that accompanied it. So it's telling us that he was once at sea. He was in a ship, and a huge wave rose up against him, and it almost drowned him. And Titus made this declaration, you see, God only has power in the water. God's trying to attack me, but he can only use water. He is feeble in other areas. Pharaoh started up with God, he drowned him in water. Sisra started up with God, he drowned him in water. And now God's upset at me because I destroyed his temple, and he wants to drown me with water. If he's so mighty, if God's so powerful, let him go into dry land and wage war against me on land. And the Talmud goes on to say that a prophetic voice announced, you're a wicked person, the son of a wicked person, you're a grandson of of the wicked one, and I'm not going to attack you with water. I'm going to attack you with the lowly creature, a small creature in my world, that is this Yitush." Again, the same animal that was discussed in the previous Talmud and Sanhedrin. And the Talmud interjects. The Talmud says, why is it called a lowly creature? It's called that because it has an entrance but doesn't have an exit, meaning it takes stuff in but doesn't spit stuff out. And this is what kind of made me think maybe this is – if it's not referring to a virus, it's referring to something very similar to a virus that just like a virus, it takes stuff in. It doesn't actually – split, doesn't have this mitosis feature of other living beings, doesn't have any edges, so to speak. Maybe this is total speculation. Again, don't quote me on this, but maybe this is actually referring to a virus. Something really small that's going to dominate Titus. And the Talmud goes on to say how this Yiddush tormented him for years and eventually this is what killed him. I think this is a very powerful lesson for us. The world has been altered Radically, by the smallest microbe, a tiny little virus. I think it's a good time for us to appreciate human fragility, human fallibility, and have a little dose of humility. The Almighty can deploy all kinds of tools in the world, and even the tiniest of microbes he could bring that's going to totally upend the world. And of course, we should be fearful of coronavirus, and of course, we should follow the best advice that we get from the medical experts and practitioners, yes. But I also think that's incumbent upon us to ask the question, what does it mean to me? What are the lessons that us, people who are influenced by Torah, people who take Torah seriously, we have to ask these questions? And I spoke to someone recently, and he told me that his goal is to be as fearful of God as the world is of coronavirus. I'm not saying to not be fearful of coronavirus. God forbid I didn't say that. Don't misquote me. I'm not saying to not listen to the medicine. I'm saying, yes, follow all the medical guidelines, but also, like the Talmud tells us, and like we're trained, we have to ask the question, what is the lesson for me? And these are some of the thoughts that I had from our parasha regarding how to navigate this circumstance and maybe some suggestions regarding how to behave in a way that hopefully will protect us and our family. And again, to run through the suggestions that we made, number one, we talked about how we have to view each other Jew as an individual. You don't count them as a statistic, treat them as individuals, and that is a prophylactic against plagues. Wash your hands. It's both a mitzvah and best practice that is told to us by the medical professionals and, of course, the idea of the real consequences of sin. There are things that are invisible, things that are really small, that really, really matter. The virus is tiny, but it operates within us very similar to how the Talmud describes sin operating within us. It's a good lesson for us to take home. We should avoid sin like we avoid the plague. Sin is detrimental to our health, just as the virus is detrimental to our health. It appears like a corona, but ultimately It's a virus. And of course, to remember human fallibility and to remember this dose of humility and the fact that there's this whole invisible world that matters a lot more than the visible world. And again, this is all speculation. We don't know what's actually happening. We'll know, I guess, as time unfolds. We cannot, of course, discount the possibility that the Almighty is attacking all of our enemies on our behalf. I did find a noteworthy, that the three countries, as of right now, again, we're talking on March twelfth on Thursday, so who knows what's going to happen. But I think it's noteworthy that the three countries that we hit the hardest with coronavirus are the ones that are the most militant atheist, China, the most militant Islamist, Iran, and of course Italy, which is the home to a lot of historical atrocities against the Jewish people, in the name of Religion. So who knows? Again, this is total speculation. We just hope and pray that the Almighty spares us, spares our families, spares our communities, spares all of our Jewish brethren, and of course, our Jewish brethren in Israel. May He watch over all of us, and may we all be safe and healthy and strong to continue studying Torah with vigor and with passion. My email address is RabbiWalbyGimba.com. I wish you all safety, health, and security, and prosperity And again, thank you for listening to this special coronavirus edition of the Parsha Podcast.